Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics. I'm Frank. I'm Jeff. And we have a new hire here today with us, Elizabeth K. Joseph, who's going to tell us really cool things about HyperProtect. Yeah. Hi, guys. And you can call me Liz. Cool. All right. Noted. <laughs> so uh, let's start. Uh, there's been a lot of hype around HyperProtect. Oh, oh, I see what you did there. That's cool. I see what you did there. Okay. Could you start by telling us what the heck is this HyperProtect thing? Yeah, so HyperProtect is um, a component of IBM Cloud. It's a series of services. So right now we have um, so we have um, HyperProtect crypto services, um, and that's a sort of keep-your-own-key system. So um, your keys are um, stored in an HSM, um, which has really, really high security, um, hardware security module. <laughs> um, and then you you only have access to them. Um, so anything you encrypt, um, you have access to those keys. Um, and then there's a, a virtual machine um, component of HyperProtect, um, where the virtual machines are inside of secure containers. Um, and then the other part um, that's currently released is a database as a service. So it's a fully encrypted database. Um, and the reason why we're talking about this on a mainframe podcast is because all of the encryption technology for these services is backed by a mainframe. Um, so all of the crypto is done on um, the, you know, the coprocessor inside of the mainframe processor. <laughs> um, and then the keys are stored in the Crypto Express card. So you have access to all of these services through the IBM Cloud um, UI and APIs and everything. Um, so it feels like you're just using a regular cloud service, um, but on the back end, you're actually accessing a mainframe and all the services are running um, through all the cryptography that the mainframe is doing and processing for you. So this is kind of important because what you're talking about is here are a set of mainframe capabilities, some services, but but the people who are using them don't have to know anything about mainframe in order to get that capability. That's right. So to them, it just looks like a service in their cloud dashboard. And they're like, I want to encrypt everything, sure. And they don't even know. And it's not really um, prominent in the marketing material. We don't really tell people that it's not on just regular x86 hardware that you might find. Um, so it's... It's a distinct offering, I think, in the cloud space, which is one of the things that was interesting for me um, because it's it's not just um, the same old stuff. Um, it's faster and better and <laughs> all the good things. And it's 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 because they're mainframe services that we're able to, to do this kind of stuff. Is, is this stuff um, available as part of uh, some ZOS out there or – no, so everything uh, in HyperProtect is based on Linux on Z. Uh, so everything inside, it's in a secure container, which is Linux on Z. And then um, everything is pretty much just Linux. And it's using, like, open source and commodity uh, cryptography solutions. So you're using things like SSL and everything inside OpenSSL. And, and you mentioned uh, secure container. What is that? Yeah, so secure container is is one we haven't released yet. So that's, I believe they're basing it on Kubernetes. So it is going to be like uh, this um, using Kubernetes, which a lot of developers these days are familiar with, um, and then that is backed. Um, it's it's secure, um, encrypted. So, but that that product's not released yet. So that's kind of like a future one. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so you have you have a, a, a long, not as long as Frank's, but a long history in. <laughs> In uh, open source and Linux, um, before arriving here in your new hiredom, can you kind of walk us through like a little bit about what you've you know been working on in the past? 
Yeah, so I, I first started playing around with Linux. I think I saw my first Linux machine in, like, 1999. And then I installed it on my home desktop in, like, 2001. And that's when I started going to Linux user groups. Um, I was living down in Philadelphia, and I was going to groups and meeting people in the area, installing it on my own computer. And I was really just playing around. Like, I ran my first web server and my first mail server back when you could do such a thing. <laughs> um, and then uh, I got my first job working as a, a Linux systems administrator in 2006. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do for work, but I sort of landed on Linux systems administration because I'd been doing it at home for fun for so long. And in the course of that job, I started contributing to Debian, so I was building Debian packages. And then around that time, Ubuntu kind of came around. And Ubuntu was great because it was, you know, easy to use Debian. So right. <laughs> I started contributing a lot to the Ubuntu project. Um, so that's kind of how I um, built a lot of my experience in, in the open source community was through Debian and Ubuntu. Um, and since then, I, I worked for HP on OpenStack and doing a lot of CI, CD, devops stuff. And that sort of got me, like, in the DevOps space. Um, and then I worked for a container company most recently, um, sort of talking about microservices and, and diversifying the architecture. Um, of, of your like monolithic applications. Um, so coming here to IBM is quite a change for me. Um, and because I was working at a startup in San Francisco on containers just before this. Uh. <laughs> and so everyone's like, and now you're working at IBM on mainframes? I'm like, yeah, that's a 180. I'm like, yeah, but it's super interesting. And I, one of the reasons I made the change was because I, I have, you know, 15 years of professional infrastructure experience. But as I started looking into mainframes, I realized how much of the world is still running on them. And I'm like, this is a giant gap in my infrastructure knowledge. I feel like there's this really important computing stuff out there that I know nothing about, and I want to fix that. So I'm imagining you you saw like a job posting or heard about through the grapevine about a job at IBM to do kind of the stuff you're working on, but on mainframes. And you probably did like a crash course and like, oh, mainframe, let me learn all about that. So where wh where was your your you know knowledge of mainframe before? It was pretty much zero. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, I think I sort of approached it, it being in the in the space of microservices and working on things like OpenStack and other distributed systems. Um, one of the things we we try to do is say like we're the most modern, awesome, fastest, greatest thing, um, reinventing like inventing all of this technology, um, and. Mainframe is a thing you get away from because those are monolithic and those are old. And, yeah. those. and one of the first things I learned was that like microservices and mainframes actually go together pretty well because you still want a solid backend for a lot of things. Um, and then the microservices can run a lot of great like stateless front end sorts of things. Um, so that, that was interesting to me. Um, but yeah, I sort of gave myself a crash course. And then I was like, I don't actually know anything. So, I mean, they're like, you know a lot about Linux, and that's great. I'm like, okay, because that's where I'm coming in. <laughs> right. Um, so how how did uh, – because obviously you're doing Linux stuff uh, on the mainframe. How hard was it to make that transition to the mainframe um, machine, right? Linux is just Linux, right? It, it actually is. Um, and I, I've played with the alternate architectures over the years. So I had a, a, a SuperSpark 10 in my office a few years ago, and that, that was a lot of fun to play with. So I sort of 
got familiar with with compiling things for alternative architectures and finding how weird it was to boot stuff up on that. I had a MIPS server at my house and for a while and um, my husband has all these old SGI boxes in our in our, nice. in our garage. <laughs> so I'm, like I'm them already. <laughs> so I'm I'm definitely no stranger to alternative architectures, and for me, this was just another alternative architecture. Um, obviously, there's there's very key differences from a you know a Spark and you know S390X box because of just one of them is a desktop and one of them is a you know giant machine. <laughs> um, but when it comes down to like porting software and like. The other week, I was I was rebuilding a bunch of RPMs from source, and I, I didn't really need anything to do that. I just recompiled them on an S390X VM, and it wasn't really a big deal. And I don't really know how to fix problems when they arise, but so far, it's actually been pretty smooth, and a lot of the applications I already need and want to use are already on there because the other thing I learned is there's not a special Linux for mainframes. It's just Red Hat or Ubuntu. So, like, it's stuff I've been working on for years already. So it's not only just Linux, it's the same Linux. <laughs> Have you had to, like, recompile a kernel and reboot a system yet? No, no kernels. Okay. So. <laughs> I was wondering because, like, once you try to reboot a system and you've messed up the kernel, like, then you get to learn VM or, <laughs> or something like that. But the nice thing is you never break the system just because you yeah no. just because you screwed up your, your nuke. <laughs> is that a challenge? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think it is. You, if you can do that, that would be You awesome. might have a, a, a long career in tests. <laughs> yeah. So, so you you've you know you you've maintained your roots in like the open source community and, and talking with Linux people. You've gone back and done you know presentations like when you're talking to people who are the the unwashed masses, the uninitiated. <laughs> what's like your your go to 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 say like you know this is the mainframe might be a platform that you should like think twice about yeah, the or first... give it a second thought to rather is a better way of saying it. I think. Right. I think the first thing is, is telling people they still exist. That's a start. Yeah, um, and that new ones are coming out. Um, and and a big thing for me, like I think the biggest thing was, as I mentioned, like that it's just the Linux distributions that you're familiar with. Um, also, there's not like secret IBM sauce in running this because um, one of the things I learned was that like OpenSSL, it just runs great on Linux on Z and. All you do is add like a little bit of a config file. It's not some crazy binary that uses some strange encryption technology. <laughs> it's really just OpenSSL, and it just works on Linux, and it starts accessing the hardware. Um, so it's not any. It's it's not a huge change um, for a lot of developers, um, but there is a lot of benefits that you can get from it, um, like the faster storage and communication between VMs and security, of course, with things like HyperProtect. So there's a lot of benefits there, um, and it's not a huge learning curve, honestly. I mean, I've been like, you know drowning in this for two months now but i'm i'm doing okay actually like yeah, it is it is still linux you so. tweeted out the other day that there's something about like the networking and and, and storage on z are like some of these are like solved problems <laughs> yeah that was so so i worked a lot on openstack yeah. and openstack has a component to it um called swift which is the um storage technology it's a distributed storage system kind of like ceph or gluster or whatnot and i I realized when I was started reading some of like the history of of essentially mainframes and and the the storage boxes that there is such a thing as enterprise grade storage and <laughs> <laughs> it exists and it connects to a mainframe um, and and some of the conversations that these distributed storage systems were having about data consistency and sharding and acts like catalogs of accessing um, data it's it's stuff that mainframes solved like thirty years ago. And they're actually reinventing technology right now, and they don't realize it. 
which is why I cannot wait until you finally hit upon Parallelsys Flex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that, you know, it's funny. I, that's so. So, when do we get you to start doing stuff on ZOS? Get out of the, the Linux world and, uh, and do uh, stuff I, on a new, different operating system. I think it'd be fun. We should do it now. <laughs> There's some people down the hall. Yeah, really. <laughs> I have opportunities for you right now. So, what would it take? Um, do you think to get some of these people who have always thought that the mainframe is old and and everything that they do on on the mainframe is you know monolithic? What, or do they just not think about the mainframe? Right. But what would it take to get them into this world? Yeah, I mean, the first one is, as Jeff says, like they just don't even oh, no. consider it. So one of the things I, I said when I started this, this this role here is that in, in Silicon Valley, where, where I live near San Jose, um, there is on-prem and there is cloud, and that's it. And it's all x86. ARM is starting to break into that and the power is a little bit, but they're only just starting on the edges of this. And those are the only games in town. And when you come into the site with the mainframe, you're like, or... (laughs) (laughs) I bought this thing. (laughs) (laughs) You can have this different sort of on-prem. But it's it's just something that is not even part of the discussion for a lot of the startups and and companies out in Silicon Valley. Um, So... It's, I mean, mainframes tend to be very East Coast-based, so there's not a lot of them on the West Coast, apparently. Um, and it's just not not part of the discussion. So the first one is, you know, just getting in there and saying they exist. Because when I, I went to um, TechU in Atlanta my first week at IBM, and the customers there, they all know all about everything. They knew more than I they, they still know more than I do. So the customers and the people who are familiar with IBM know all of this stuff, and they know all about mainframes, and they know about the options. And I actually had dinner with someone who I met in Philadelphia, knew in, from Philadelphia, and he's been a customer forever. And they're like, yeah, we totally dug into the mainframe thing. And I'm like, so you all knew about this. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I don't get that in the West Coast. And I, I, there, if you're not an IBM customer, it's really hard. You don't know that mainframe still exists. The first one is saying that they still exist and um, showing, I think, a, a value proposition, both with regard to technology and, and cost. Because the first thing they say is it's too expensive. And then I say, how big was your Amazon bill last year? Right. And then I don't know the numbers around mainframes. That's not part of my job. I don't know how much they cost. But <laughs> I know how much Amazon bills cost I mean, and Amazon bills are, and they're very high. Um, so... I mean, again, I don't know how to sell things, but <laughs> so, um, some of these, I mean, the big thing is like, oh, it's too expensive. I'm not going to you know, spend money on that. And I'm like, well, if you want to just play around with them, you can get, you know, HyperProtect VM and start playing with the architecture. Or uh, we also have a community cloud that people can play around with VMs. So Yeah, it's, it's hard to get people to unlearn something that they, they've convinced themselves is a truth. Do you think that if I, I gave people a bunch of Linux environments and said, look, it's slightly different because I do have to recompile, right? Um, Would that work? I mean, it it seems like VMs are so readily available today that that's not enough. No, and it it definitely depends on your audience. So some of the people I've been talking to recently are developers. And the value that I'm bringing to them is you can reach a new audience of of people by recompiling your software for a different architecture. And the things that you're going to learn through this is – 
one, that like other architectures are out there. So this one person I was talking to last week, they're already recompiling everything for ARM. And I'm like, okay, well, why don't you add this one too? I'll give you a VM and you can start recompiling your software. Um, so they're getting experience with other architectures. And that's actually interesting from a technological point of view. Um, but they're also learning about porting. They're learning about how to make better software that does not make assumptions about x86 because mm-hmm. I've talked to the porting team, and they're like, people make weird assumptions about their architecture. (laughs) (laughs) And they become a better developer when they start um, uh, developing for cross-platform. And I think most people want to be a better developer. Um, When I'm talking to infrastructure people, um, the the crypto side of things, encryption and the hardware stuff, like that's a big draw. Um, And I know, you know, other architectures are going to are going to come into the space. It's not like there's no encryption um, elsewhere, and there's even hardware encryption elsewhere. But um, just the the quality and the solved problemness <laughs> of of uh, cryptography on the mainframe is a really big deal. As a as a um, Linux sysadmin, how many systems are you used to managing at the same time? So when I was working on the OpenStack infrastructure team, um, we ran the CI/CD system for the OpenStack project. So we were processing about 2,000 patches an hour, and that's 2,000 VMs an hour. These are VMs we're spinning up and bringing down. And so it's a fleet across the entire OpenStack, like multiple OpenStack clouds. So we had a hybrid infrastructure where we were managing, I think, like, yeah, like 2,000 VMs at a time. So in the thousands, yeah. So do you think that you could make a case to them that that would be easier on on a mainframe, or is it just, look, it's OpenStack, it wasn't that hard as it was? So the big thing with distributed systems, um, there's, there's a couple of things. Um, there's networking is a giant pain. Storage is a giant pain. And these are things that are not often in your calculations of how, the, how much this project is going to cost. You're like, all right, cool, I'm going to spin up OpenStack. Also, I'll disclaimer, I wrote a book on OpenStack, so, <laughs> so I tend to talk about it a lot and reference where, it. Where can people find that? Yeah, you got to tell people where they can find your book. Uh, so it, it's just um, um, Prentice Hall um, published it, so it's a Pearson book. And what's it called? Uh, open, uh, common OpenStack Deployments. Oh, cool. Um, so anyway, but we I spend... We get 15% of those sales, I think. That's our first real author, right? Um a red book authors. We've had red books. We've had red book authors. That doesn't count, though. No. Nah, right. <laughs> Technically, we're both red book authors. Yeah. So, obviously, I don't like any club that I'm a member of. Carry on. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, I've spent a lot of time in distributed systems. So, I have an entire chapter on networking because it's hard. And it's one of those things that you don't build into your into your line of, like, this is how much it's going to cost and how much time it's going to take. Um, and then storage is, is a big issue. Um, so... I think, as I said, like those are solved problems in the mainframe space. So when you build your infrastructure, not like not only do you have to wrangle like you know two hundred physical machines and deal with the hardware complications that come with that, which is not to be underestimated because hard drives fail all the time and things overheat and power supplies die. And even if you have a little bit of redundancy, it's nowhere near what I found in the mainframe space. So you suddenly take like all the technician time and all of the I have to go and rack a bunch of servers time. Um, and you drop that to zero. And I think that's a lot of labor and time that is not always taken into consideration in these projects. Um, so it can be hard to convince people that it exists. But anyone who's done it before and built a lab out, they know how much time it takes. And the vendor sent the wrong part, and now I have to replace all the hard drives. And there's just like all these complicated things that come from building distributed systems where you have hundreds or thousands of machines. Um, that's pretty much eliminated um, in the mainframe space because you only have the one box and it's delivered and it's they all talk to each other and it's really fast and good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also nicer to have one big, very efficient power supply and cooling unit 
with like one you know one backup component for it than 500 scattered around a raised floor somewhere too yeah and and one of the one of the things i i I tweeted about a while back, but keeps coming back to haunt me in good ways, <laughs> was that I, I mentioned that we, we live in a world of unreliable x86 hardware that we forgot was unreliable x86 hardware. Because <laughs> Google came out, you know, a few, 20 years ago and was like, I know, if you just put a bunch of cheap hardware in a data center, it's super cheap to run it. And that's what the entire industry, tech industry did. And it's really cheap for Google. <laughs> but um, when you're a startup running around and managing a bunch of different servers, it stops being cheap. Like, it's, it's great at scale. Um, I don't think Google's going to use mainframes anytime soon. But. Probably not. <laughs> well, it would, it would cost a dollar per search. <laughs> <laughs> because they've really built an environment that is specialized yeah. for the hardware they have. Yeah, and they build out a lot of their stuff. So they buy things really yeah, everything. small. Yeah, everything. Well, you, talk to, you, you start to look at like, the network architecture of something like, like a Netflix or an Amazon, and you, you start to say, okay, well, yeah, I, I understand why they do things the way they are, and they, they can do it that way. It makes absolute sense. Then you start to talk to like the insurance companies and credit card <laughs> processors, and you're like, we want to be oh, like Google. Oh, oh yeah. my! Oh my God! Like this, you know, this this needs to run here. Like, what else can we get you for? You know, to yeah. make this work better. When you're talking to people who are kind of like on the fence, do you? Are you I know you're working on some code patterns right now that will kind of show off what kind of some of the benefits are, mm-hmm. without ruining any surprises or anything like that. Do you have anything like um, plan that would be like a good like a showcase for you know for for Z, for someone who's just like not aware of the platform at all? So one of the things I've been doing, um, I already released one article about it, but it's building um, uh, Linux packages just for Z. Mm-hmm. So one of them is personal package archives for Ubuntu. Um, so now any developer can create a deb package, upload it to Launchpad, click a little box, and it builds for S390X. Um, Suze also has a build system, uh, an open build system that anyone can submit to so they can upload their packages and have it built for a bunch of different architectures at once. So that's kind of what I'm starting with. Um, I'm using the tools that the developers already have for releasing their software and saying, hey, like, you don't even need to know anything about mainframes. You don't need to even have access to one. You can just click this button on Launchpad and see if it builds. And... We have a few options if you want to try it out on a VM um, once your package is built. But I, I wrote this like really simple Golang application, and I, I uploaded it, had it built, and then installed on my VM. And I was like, ta-da! <laughs> and it was really simple. I didn't. I really just check, checked a box, and that was. But it's it's interesting that these build systems exist for um, things like Ubuntu and, and SUSE already. Um, so I'm trying to like use the existing tools that are out there, and then bring the developers in that way to show them how they can release their software and learn how to develop for alternate, like, other architectures. Can a modern CICD, you know, pipeline environment support multiple architectures? Oh, yeah, totally. So that, that's what both of these systems are. They just offload to whatever they have. So Canonical has a Z13 stuffed away in their data center, and they just offload all of their jobs to that, and it's all in a CI, CICD pipeline. So when I click that box, it automatically goes out and builds the packages, and, like, five minutes later, I've got a, a package for S390X. Cool. It sounds like a full-time job, though, going and grabbing a bunch of packages and just rebuilding them. That's all automated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, oh, I got to go get this one and put that one out. I got to get this one and put that one out. Oh, that's what computers do. <laughs> there you go. That's perfect. When, when you, you mentioned um, you like the fact that it's a single box instead of thousands of boxes doing yeah. stuff. Do people ever argue, but if one of them goes down, I'm okay. 
what if that big one goes down? I can't do anything. <laughs> yeah, sure. That that is an argument. Or like across across places. Like what what if my, there's an earthquake and the mainframe is where the earthquake is? And then I show them the video of like the mainframe like getting earthquakes. <laughs> okay, there are big enough earthquakes where that still wouldn't help. But <laughs> um, but there there are like distributed options for mainframes, right? Like you can yeah. put them between sites and stuff. And GPS. I haven't. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I haven't I haven't dug into that much. But you know, I just tell them that. You know, you just buy two of them. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah. Do you think we're still? Uh, you mentioned like you're you're kind of doing a, a couple of end runs to try to get some stuff working. Are we still like in kind of the the wild west days of of open source, um, or is it still largely done by like um, corporate led efforts? I think we're sort of in a middle ground. Um, I mean, when I started working on open source, it was it was very wild westy, and we all did our own thing, and none of us were paid. <laughs> right. But a lot of people are paid now, and a lot of companies really understand um, open source. Um, and we also have uh, like we, I had a call with the Linux Foundation the other day, and they were really great because they're facilitators in this space. So they're talk, speaking with companies who aren't quite understanding the open source space or how to collaborate between companies. So for me, I just hop on IRC and like I know a guy and I just like talk to them about things and that's how. I found out about the OpenSUSE build system, right? I, I just, like, I know someone at SUSE, and I just went on IRC, and I found them. And, uh, but, I mean, that's that's not really the way of things <laughs> for the most part at, at big companies and things. So, like, the Linux Foundation and other organizations are facilitating um, better collaboration and more professional collaboration. So we're sort of, like, I think at a turning point where it's, it's becoming a lot more um, professional in some ways. Imagine, if you will... Um Ginny gives you a whole bunch of money to do whatever you want here. What, what would you want to do? So first, we get a Linux One machine at every conference we go to. <laughs> a one that's running, not just the shell. Right. <laughs> um, we show people the terminal um, on the machine, and we show them all the little pieces. So these at conferences, like, the machines draw attention. Like, people want selfies with them. People want to see how they work. And just... Like there, there was a, a video you uh, you made recently of, of yep. Esmeralda like giving a tour of the mainframe, and every time I show that to people, they're like, "Oh, that's what a mainframe is." <laughs> <laughs> it's um, amazing we've beat around the the point until we got to that. Like, no, this this it is a thing. It doesn't float in midair. It's, a... <laughs> it's just a computer, right? <laughs> um, so getting them in people's faces, but it's really expensive to ship around a mainframe to a bunch of conferences. So, but I have unlimited money. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that's a big one. Um, and also, I think I think growing more more content material about what you can actually do. I mean, for me, it's like it's like Linux on Z. So, like, why does it matter that my application runs on Linux on Z? What am I leveraging that's better and what can run better? And I think also more development into making things run better on Z. Um, when I was talking to the porting team, they said Go is is written, like they've rewritten parts of Go and, of course, contributed it to the language so that it can actually access the hardware um, encryption stuff. So Go actually runs better on a mainframe than it does, but they don't always do that. You, they usually do ports, so it runs just as well as on x86. And I think more development time to making things run better would be really awesome and contributing that all back to the open source project. So do you think a lot of it has to be re-architected or is it really no. just these... I think I think just having a bigger porting team and making it happen more quickly because one of the things, first things I learned, I was like, okay, so what does it mean when you say you have Red Hat Enterprise Linux on a mainframe? Does that mean you recompile the entire repository? Turns out it means they've recompiled as much as they can, which is not the whole repository. And it's more every day because they're working on it. But if we could just make that happen, 
much faster and get more packages like the Apple repository. Like everyone uses that, the EPEL um, additional repository, but it's not built for S390X. And if we could have that, that would be so great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna add a rider onto your idea of having a, a Linux one at every conference. Would be one of those deli style ticket things where you just pull it off and there's your log on for it for that week. Oh, so good. Or, That's you know. a cool idea. Hey, thank you. Let, let's let's do that. Ross is right down the hallway. We could uh, we'll go ask. I heard he's here today. I heard I heard he did a great radio show. Yeah, well, we weren't invited, so no. Um, but yeah, and and who knows if that if that access stays up uh, after the conference? Who knows? Well, and it would, it would really go a long way of getting people to realize the sheer number of things that you can run at the same time. Yeah. And so yeah, you'll get it, and it's not just for the conference. We'll give it to you for a month or or, or two months or something like that. That'd be cool. Yeah. Let's let's go make that happen. Okay. So so this um, believe it or not. We actually have a lot of people that listen to this podcast, more people than we deserve, (laughs) to be quite honest. Um, So there's going to be a lot of people listening, people tweet about it and stuff like that. Is there anything that you, you know, now is a good time if you are looking for an expert in in memory or storage or networking or crypto or anything like that that, you you know, you're kind of stuck on, you just put out a request and I'm sure somebody will get get in touch with you. (laughs) So I think it's less on the technology side at the moment, and I want to learn all about history. Really? So like, I, I did a talk last week at a Linux users group about the history of Linux on Z, but it was not comprehensive. I did a bun- I interviewed a bunch of people, but it was not enough people. So if anyone wants to come talk to me about how they worked on Linux on Z like 15 years ago or even if you were there at the beginning, come. I, I'd love to like block off an hour in my schedule and just chat. Have like, you met with Jay Brenneman yet? No. Okay. He's, he's that guy. Yeah, he's definitely one of them. Yeah. Oh, wait. I think we had, we had a VC. Like, yeah, last you week. had a, yeah, yeah. yeah. Last week, yeah. He's, we like, he's like our answer to Ron Swanson. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty cool. Yeah. So before we before we wrap up here, because as, as Frank is pointing out, we are coming up to the top or top bottom. Top of the hour. Top of the hour. Anything you want to plug before we uh, before we wrap up here? Besides your book? <laughs> what, what was that book again? Common OpenStack Deployments. If you want to learn a bit more about distributed systems and how they stack up. <laughs> but but so much of it is applicable if they ran it on, on Z as well, right? Yeah, you totally could. And I, I think like the hybrid nature of our environments these days is just like um, – so a, a lot of – I mean you can – there are connectors for OpenStack to launch VMs in, in on, on Linux on Z mm-hmm. and ZOS. I think one of the kind of the interesting aspects is we, we have kind of adapted to this uh, standard size brick – of what a computing instance is. And it's just because that's like, you know, the most cost effective or portable, you know, physically, literally portable option out there. And it's like, what if you take away that restriction? You know, what does your ideal unit of compute look like now? And it might be something with three processors and eight terabytes of memory or something like <laughs> yeah. that. Like the the ability to scale things in, you know, I'll say unusual sizes is something that I think might be interesting to people who are just thinking about the mainframe for the first time. Yeah, yeah. that's certainly. And, and uh, I would I would add um, kind of Liz's point about the fact that I can, I can build entire networked compute environments in the machine. With literally zero inches of cable being yes. added. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah and, it's, it's, it's powerful. And, and one of the things I, I, I used to talk about when I was talking a lot about containers and, you know, containers are coming to mainframes too. There's, there's a lot of container technology coming to that space. And I, I like to tell people it was less about container ships and more like Tupperware. 
All these different sizes. Because con- that's part of the beauty of containers. But now we're talking about like a big, big container over here, right? right. Like you got like a giant like like Christmas tree storage container. Over here. <laughs> that's what you get on the mainframe. You don't just get little food boxes. <laughs> well, I want to take this opportunity to thank you, uh, Liz, for coming and spending a half hour or so with us and telling us uh, a, a version of Linux One that we really haven't done yet on the show. We've have people on, but not with your level of technical expertise. <laughs> or, or lack thereof on the mainframe side. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. Old Man Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence signing off.